So, good evening. How is the sound? Can you hear me? Okay. My voice works a little bit. <laughs> I was thinking uh, this afternoon when I was out for a walk, and just uh, the thought came how with different teachers, there's different ways of presenting the Dharma, and that's one of the wonderful things about having a, a team of teachers. You'll get different flavors, and I was thinking my uh, particular flavor is trying to categorize what what's my flavor. Uh, I'm I'm kind of like like jazz. It's kind of, maybe that's a little self-aggrandizing. Uh, I'm not, I don't play music, but you know, it's like, I like that, um, that quality of improv jazz. And I think the Dhamma feels to me a bit like, uh, like jazz. We don't know what's gonna come next. And then other styles of, of teaching or talks or the way it's presented a bit like fine wines, they get better, they're cultivated. Um, so just so you, know, so you know what you're in for, this is. <laughs> uh, just before I came in here, there was a I hadn't seen it before, so it must be somewhat new in the staff dining room. There's a shrine uh, to, I think, ex-staff members who have passed away, and I recognized a couple, and then some dear teachers that are there as well. And there's a little Pali chant that's on the table and that says in, in English, uh, all conditioned things are impermanent. They are subject to change. And to live in accord with this truth is to know true happiness, which is peace. And it's kind of precious seeing a few of the faces that I was, I've been very close to and they're not here anymore. And what stood out for me was how much my mind has proliferated during the day about giving this talk. And just how much the mind can make of something. Meanwhile, we are passing, we're passing Time is passing. You know, so just the juxtaposition of knowing that change and yet, you know, I know life is impermanent. I think most of you know that life is impermanent by now. You can give me a little nod if you have some sense of that. <laughs> Things are changing. You know, what's also remarkable is how easily the mind still gets hooked into some kind of struggle or reaction. 
It's like we seem to know better on one level. We know the philosophy or we know what's true. And yet on other levels, emotional levels, psychological levels, inner states of being, these patterns and forces are really strong, conditioned over long periods of time. So I do have a theme that I'm going to try to improvise around. It's around right view. And just and the implications that right view has for how we approach the Dharma and practice. It seems like a lot of my wisdom comes from the staff dining room. Uh, <laughs> because two days ago, a staff member was telling me an insight of theirs. So this is another sailing story, (laughs) not quite as morbid as last night's. Uh, um, (laughs) So this one, this uh, friend, staff member, was sharing how he hadn't realized that his whole approach to living had been an effort to calm the waves. It's as if he were in a sailboat and he was always trying to calm the waves. And he noticed that in spending so much energy in trying to really do the impossible, he hadn't really learned how to sail. And I thought that was such a beautiful metaphor for, in a way, what we are all uh, up against, looking at our own habits of mind. And the Buddha said very clearly that it is because of habits of mind that are unseen, unnoticed, not aligned with the truth, the way things are, that we suffer. It's not random that we suffer. And it's not because the ocean is stormy. It's not because the wind is blowing. It's not because the part two yogis showed up in a really agitated state. It's not because Joseph is no longer here. (laughs) I wish he were. (laughs) Whatever reason it is, right? There's all kinds of things that we would point to and say, this is why I'm suffering. And that pointing tends to be at something we don't like. Oftentimes it's external, but it also can be internal. Things that we are pointing at that we feel like we have some control around and they might be internal views of self, self-worth, feelings of shame, not able to live up to the standards that we either think we need to live up to or that other people are holding. 
it was mentioned that I had spent some time in Burma with a, a monk that you probably have heard the name Saito Utejaniya. Many of you have studied with him as well. Um, I remember one of the things I I really appreciated when I started practicing with him, and I would hear him tell yogis quite frequently. He'd say, "I don't I don't care if you have an insight." I said, oh, that's great. (laughs) That kind of suited my practice at that time. (laughs) So what I would really love is that you understand how to practice. You understand what it is that we're doing because then you have the whole life to keep going. So, you know, part of what we're doing here in this time together is hopefully becoming better sailors, learning how to look at what it is that we can take care of uh, that's actually within our ability to cultivate that will lead us towards a sense of well-being. So the Buddha put right view really prominently in the Dhamma. It's the first step of the Noble Eightfold Path. And he often talked about this quality as being kind of unmatched or unparalleled in terms of its consequences. He said there was no quality as blameworthy as having wrong view. Blameworthy in this case for me means it's what leads us towards a sense of struggle, a sense of not being at ease with the way things are. So when we have wrong view in the mind, our tendency is it's bound to be that our approach to the moment is going to be one that's not equipped to meet what's arising. And he said, there's nothing as supportive, as nurturing, as leading onward, as right view. So what are some of these views? And I'd like to really try to keep this as practical as possible. So again, for my teacher, Saito Tejaniya, um, oftentimes people would ask him, what do I do now? What do I do now? In their practice, you know, if they had stayed for a week or two or a few months, okay, I've been watching this, what do I do now? All right, I'm done with that. Now what do I do? So either out of a sense of frustration, getting tired with that question, or understanding that in general we try and do too much. Uh, He kind of came up with these three simple, very practical, he called them yogi jobs. So he'd say, okay, you have three yogi jobs. 
And the first one was to check to see if right view is in the mind. And the next was to see if you're aware. And the third was to continue. So supporting the continuity of practice. So again, for him, this sense of right view was so important. And then anytime someone would come and say, what do I do now? He would say, you know what to do. Is there right view in the mind? Are you aware? So the practice then can become really simple. What that really enabled me to do was when, when strong difficulties were coming up and I wasn't sure what was happening now, I could check and see, how am I relating to this experience? What's my view in the mind? So one of the most conditioned views that we have, and this is what we would say is wrong view, and we say right and wrong, it's really those qualities that lead either towards a sense of suffering, of ill ease, and then right, meaning those qualities that lead onward that free us from a sense of contraction, of being identified, So one of the strongest wrong views that so far seems completely universal to me, I've yet to meet anyone that doesn't have this view in the mind. And the view is that we take things very personally. It's happening to me, or this is mine, my emotion, my sadness, my fear, my nervousness. I was thinking how a quality like shame, and I like to talk about shame because I think it's a, such a hidden, internalized quality that's so easily easy to cover over and that in our culture is, is uh, pandemic or endemic, it's, it seems to be everywhere. Um, and it's so unpleasant. Have you ever enjoyed your shame? The interesting thing is I am starting to enjoy shame. That's radical. So I was thinking if I were to ask you to either you know, write an essay or paint the colors of shame, write music or poetry or whatever it is, cook a meal that represents shame, <laughs> whatever your flavor is, shame would become something that you would become interested in. You could study it, you could look at it. So seeing what the shift is there is from taking something that's happening to me, I don't want to experience this quality to something now that's being known. It's a natural process. It's conditioned. It arises when the causes are there. 
lawfully unfolds, and then we can study it. So it's one of the, the fundamental ways of looking at right view, to understand things as being lawful, causes and conditions. Somehow, delusion in the mind blocks seeing that right view of things as being nature, as being natural, to the one aspect of our experience that is so important, which is our own mind and heart. So for example, it's very easy to go outside. You know, and for the most part, even though we might find it unpleasant, we don't, I don't know, maybe you do, but you're not asking, you know, the wind to stop blowing. You know, telling the trees to kind of shift a little bit here. Sometimes we ask the clouds to move a little bit faster, get out of the way of the sun. But in general, you know, we have this kind of innate understanding of how things happen, that there's a lawfulness to life. So can we turn that understanding towards our own experience? And this invitation to use your own wisdom was shocking to me when it was invited. I'd gotten very accustomed to practicing in a way that was kind of heavy technique with, ve- with very little wisdom. So I got very good at tracking what was happening in my body, my sensations, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know where it was leading. So I didn't know what to do. I, that's why I kept turning to Sido. What do I do now? So maybe he created those three yogi jobs for me. <laughs> what do I, do? I actually remember now asking him a number of times, what do I do? What do I watch now? Said, Just watch. Just wait. Keep watching. again in the staff, staff dining room, <laughs> just before coming in, uh, uh, another friend was sharing uh, that Manindraji, um, who is a teacher for many of the Western senior teachers, was saying that the, uh, he thought one of the biggest obstacles in the path is Self-view, Sakaya Ditti, personality view. So I think there's enough kind of evidence of the importance of this quality and to really use it uh, in your practice.
We want to try and think of something very practical around kind of exploring this. Uh, if you haven't been doing that already, And we talked a little bit about sloth and torpor today, the sense of sleepiness. And someone mentioned thoughts. So are these qualities natural? Are they a part of nature? Are they universal? Do they have causes, conditions out of which they arise? And the answer is yes. So anything that we actually look at, that we observe, that we turn towards, has the same, same truth. Things are conditioned. Really great being here with you. I'm always reminded in the midst of retreat that um, so much of what it is that we're turning towards that we have to sit with and be with is actually not oftentimes very pleasant. It's a lot of different conditions that come up of doubt and uncertainty, not liking things or boredom. And again, when we really begin to understand what it is that we're doing, why is it important that we look directly at things? What does that lead towards? And when we don't understand experiences, really kind of taking that in, that it's an endless journey, that we'll always be spinning and trying to fix our experience. Because experiences are truly out of our control. The basic characteristics that we'll talk frequently about is that things are subject to change. That ultimately, what is subject to change is not satisfying, they're unsatisfactory. And that phenomenon don't really belong to us. They're just unfolding, following their own lawful uh, conditions. 
So this is true both in regard to the, the pleasant, the beautiful qualities of mind, like mindfulness and wisdom. And they'll arise when conditions are there. And this is also true for the factors of mind that we have to bear with and open to. And this is oftentimes why the practice feels difficult. It's because we're gonna look a lot at qualities of greed, of aversion and delusion. These are the three roots of what the Buddha talked about when he said, suffering has a cause. That suffering isn't just happening randomly. So another element um, that comes to mind I'd like to share about right view is this simple uh, remembering, and I, th- I believe Rebecca shared this on the opening night, of the nature of experience. That any moment of experience is, the, uh, as I believe Joseph describes, a, a pairwise progression of an object being known an object being known. And every experience has that basic uh, kind of, mm, it's made up of that. And that's true for whether or not we are practicing the Dharma and we know that to be happening or if we're just living our life unmindful. So any being that's walking around in the world right now, even though they don't, let's say, haven't heard the Dharma, they don't know the Dharma, they're experiencing sounds. If they have the working ear door, they're experiencing sights. If the eye door is working, smells, body sensations, thoughts and emotions, ideas. And this is what we all call our life, right? That our life is composed by this ongoing activity of these six sense doors. And that even though life can look so overwhelming at times, particularly when the mind isn't clear about the Dhamma all that is happening is happening in those sense stores as far as our direct experience is concerned. And what the Buddha was pointing to in really highlighting where suffering arises is that it's not in the experience itself. 
And this is really understanding how in any given moment there is just the knowing of something, the knowing of something. The place where suffering arises in that is in the relationship to what's arising. How am I relating to the waves? And when we really begin to understand and take in that all experience, all experience is relation, is relationship. It's relationship, relational. So we're having a relationship to seeing, if we can see, if there's that faculty, to hearing, to our moods, emotions, thoughts. And this relationship is often rooted in some kind of stress, some kind of struggle, some agitation when we don't see clearly. This is the attitude of mind. And where when we really begin to understand what right view is, how we can begin to see right view will condition an attitude towards experience that can bring a sense of ease. So when we understand that experiences are simply happening, it's emotional state, confusion, distracted mind, this is simply happening then the response to that is to open to it, to be with it, recognize what's here. Can I be with this? And the silence feels so uh, palpable. And one of the things that I just really um, I so appreciate being in this uh, role with you, being able to be in the Dharma is that it also asks for, for me, like an authenticity. I want to uh, show up and be 
practicing with you as well. And this is one of the things that I uh, am committed to even in this uh, process of trying to share some ideas in the Dharma. Is there right view in your mind right now? Yes, you can check relating to experience right now is a natural process. This is what's here. Feels like this. Pleasant or unpleasant, not sure. How am I relating to it? These kinds of investigations can get very subtle over time. For a long time I've had kind of a contraction in my uh, throat area. It's changing over the years. And I was sure, because I've uh, kind of had it be a place of exploration, I was convinced that there was no kind of wrong attitude in relation to this sensation, kind of tightness, not But at some point I kind of really decided, I'm gonna really, really see if there's resistance to this experience. Because Tejaniya would often, he would often ask, what's your attitude? Check the attitude. How are you relating to this? And I'd say, well, it's just nature. It's just a cramp. So I knew kind of how to say, you know, how to report. And what I saw was I asked the question at some point, if this phenomenon were to really be here, just be here forever, how would I feel? And then if it were to go away right now, how would I feel? And it seemed to you, I could kind of pretend that I didn't care if it stayed forever. But when I asked the question, if it were to go away right now, it was so obvious, oh, I do have a preference here. Right? And that preference 
was the aversion in the mind. And the way that aversion was showing up for me was I was watching it, but pushing against it. It's as if I was pushing against a wall. And in some ways that kind of Greek myth of Sisyphus having to push the rock up the hill and then it always would roll back over him. It's like this is that attitude that we have towards a lot of experiences is how am I relating to this experience? Is there aversion in the mind? Is there not liking? Can I make aversion now something that I begin to open to? Just like any other phenomenon is nature, so are these conditioned experiences, right? The, the very root causes of why it is that we are caught. So we want to understand aversion really want to get interested in that. What does it feel like to not like? What is that energy? Or to want? And then when there's not wanting, and no preference, does that lead to freedom? Does that lead to a sense of ease? I did bring a quote. I will read a quote because we often do that. <laughs> what does having, this is from Saito Uteshaniya. What does having the right attitude mean? Having the right attitude is a way of looking at things that makes you content, comfortable, and feel at ease with whatever you are experiencing. Right attitude allows you to accept, acknowledge, and observe what is happening in a relaxed and alert way. You have to accept and watch both good and bad experiences because every experience, whether good or bad, gives you a learning opportunity to notice whether the mind accepts things as the way they are or whether it likes, dislikes, reacts or judges. And what does having the right attitude mean? Having the right attitude is a way of looking at things that makes you, f- that makes you content, comfortable, and feel at ease. So we're not habitually applying our mindfulness And I think a lot of our practice can become very mechanical of just going through the rote process. You know, if we take an anchor of the breath, watch and see, am I just habitually watching the breath? Or is there a sense of aliveness knowing the mind is knowing the breath now in order to develop this quality of awareness 
stabilizing the mindfulness, using the breath, allowing the breath to be a support. And it's just a support. And then see what happens when we get attached to the breath. What happens to sounds, particularly if someone else is making them? The mind doesn't like it. If it's birds, that's okay. If it's another yogi, ooh, that's no good. And what's the attitude in the mind? Why am I watching? What am I cultivating? Am I practicing in a way that feels relaxed and natural? I feel like this uh, jazz piece has notes all over the place. (laughs) You know, I think um, when we wake up in the morning, we really have no idea what's coming. We don't know what moods will be here by the end of the day. It's unlikely you're in the same mood that you woke up with. The hair has changed a lot of shapes if you have a lot of hair. (laughs) Goes all over the place. The body's been in motion. So much change, so dynamic. We're learning to use the life as a support for our development, meeting things the way they are. Simple noticing, simple noticings. One breath has a lot of texture. It's not the same in the beginning as the end. Each breath is new. So we don't have yesterday's breath. There's this breath. And these are all right views to have in mind. Whatever is arising is new. Aches in the body, sensations, even repetitive thoughts. They're arising new because this moment is always freshly arising. So as we begin to shift and attune the mind towards having that view of experience, this is new, simply arising, something that I can become aware of, observing, the entanglement, 
the identification with experience. That sentence had a beginning. I don't know what the ending is because I I lost track. <laughs> so, Hmm. The Dhamma is, it's so rich. I was really touched by Rebecca's comment that it almost felt like at times it was too much to bear to be in reality. That's the way it can feel at times when we're still cultivating the practice. And yet living in alignment with the way things are brings a greater sense of ease. And then we wonder, why would I ever want to live apart from the way things are? To not know how the mind is reacting. To not be open to what's happening. And again, the habits of mind are very subtle and it takes a long time of viewing and seeing them for all the uh, letting go of these habits to be fulfilled. So that's our task as much as we can. We stay with our experience, observing in a very natural way, what's arising, what can I be aware of? How am I relating to experience, which is the attitude? How am I viewing it? What's the lens? Through the lens of self, clinging, identifying, or seeing it clearly. This is the Dhamma. Can sit quietly together for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.